This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. Most listening might agree that we are saved by grace through faith, but there is so much more to know about God's amazing grace and the gifts that are included with His grace. Well, over the next few weeks, we have opportunity to take a fresh look at God's transforming power in our lives because of grace. Today, our guest, Scott Pollock, will focus on the grace gospel, how man can be made right with God apart from works of the law. Scott is the lead pastor of Faith Bible Church of the Woodlands, Texas, and author of the booklet, Grace Simple Profound. We will be making available to you a free copy of this booklet at the end of our podcast. Let's listen now as Pastor Pollock shares the grace gospel. We had keys to a car in one hand, a bill of sale on the table in front of me that said for one dollar, and I didn't even have a dollar. Uh, He had the keys of a car in one hand and a bill of sale waiting for my signature, and it said for one dollar, and I didn't even have a dollar. Not, not that I didn't have a dollar to my name. I, I didn't have a dollar to give him. I didn't have cash. And I felt very, very sheepish. This was in the middle of seminary. And the guy who was standing in front of me, his name was Sal. And Sal was a seminary friend of mine. He was much older than I was. This is a, a, a new career change for him. I think he had come to faith very late in his life. And now he was in his late 50s, early 60s as a seminary student with me doing a master's of theology, learning Greek and Hebrew. Uh, and systematic theology and pastoral ministry stuff and we're in classes together and I really liked Sal. We had had lots of conversations, learned a little bit about his family. We'd pray together. We'd have lunch together every now and then. And uh, it was during that time that I shared with, when I, I a prayer request, which I didn't often share, personal request, uh, especially things that my family needed, but my car, this beautiful 1988 Mercury Grand Marquis, right, 22 feet long, Blue velour seats, vinyl top, was amazing. Um, It had died on the side of the road, okay? And there was no resurrection in store for this car. Uh, It had seen its last mile and we had to tow it away. And uh, we just needed a car. We had a young son, a couple months old. My wife was pregnant and uh, we just needed a new way around. And we didn't have money to go around. And so I just asked in our small group, a group of guys at seminary, just prayed that God would somehow provide us means to get a car and Several weeks later, Sal calls and says, hey, would you come down to Katy? Can you find a ride down to Katy? And I was like, sure, why? He's like, I think it would be important for you. I'm gonna give you the address. He gave me this address deep in Katy that I'd never been to and somebody gave me a ride down there. And I go into his house, there's Sal's house, and he introduced me to his wife and he shows me over the table. We chit-chat for just a second, pours me a cup of coffee. He pulls out keys and a bill of sale for $1. And I didn't even have a dollar to give him. And I said, what is this? He said, you, you need a car? I got a car. It's yours for a dollar. And I said, I, I don't even have the dollar. He said, even if you had it, I wouldn't take it. I don't want the dollar. I need to put something on the bill of sale. And I said, where, where did you get this car from? Whose is it? He goes, none of that matters. And I said, no, it's, I want the story. Um, why, why are you doing this? He said, because you need it. You're my friend. Um, 
this is it. And I was like, I, how much did it cost you? What's the real, I don't want to talk about that. He finally gave me a little bit of information in fact that he bought this car from his neighbor and it was in his garage, closed garage. Um, and he was giving it to me for a dollar, but he wouldn't take the dollar. And so profusely, I thanked him. Um, and there was an urge there to like, do you, can I mow your lawn? I mean, what, you know, what, what, can, what, what, what can I do for you? Because that's what we do when somebody gives us a great gift. And he said, I don't want anything from you. It's nothing, nothing. I've grown to like you and love you as my seminary friend and just sign the, here's the title and deed and bill of sale and here's the keys, okay? Um, and I got in this car, I can't remember what kind it was. We had it for years and years. It was green, brown leather seats and uh, I, I felt very safe in it, let's say that, okay? It was large and in charge going down the highway and it was great in the back for a couple of carriers, uh, babies and uh, we had that for a long, long time. Um, and I... I didn't quite know what to do. When I got into it from Katie and drove myself back home, I didn't listen to the radio. I didn't say anything. I just kind of had tears in my eyes the whole way. What have I done to deserve this? What did I do to Sal? I, I, didn't, I barely knew him. Barely knew him. And here's a guy giving me a very, very expensive gift that he purchased himself with no, no need to be paid back, no recourse, nothing asked of me. Wow. I'm not sure if you've experienced grace in real life. You probably have. But those opportunities are very rare. Um, the opportunities that we most experience are someone else forgiving us for sin that we've committed against them. Someone else welcoming us when we haven't welcomed them perhaps or giving us mercy, allowing us to um, enter into their life when maybe a, a, a wise person would think secondly about that, right? We've we experience, if you have eyes to see, some relational grace and some beautiful aspects of grace given to us, but this is such a beautiful topic. I've been thinking for a long, long time, for years now, if God just said, Scott, I want you to pick one thing for the rest of your life to talk about. I like to talk, have you noticed? Uh, and uh, it's all you can talk about for the rest of your life. I know exactly what it would be. It would be the grace of Jesus Christ that the Father has lavishly given to us and continually given. I would talk and happily talk and write and write songs if I could uh, about that and pray about that and lead discussions about that and lead groups through that for the rest of my life. If I was only given that, be happy, be completely happy because it, it's so deep, it's so beautiful. It's a bit like the iceberg image that's on your booklet. Uh, if you got this, hopefully everybody got this, I'll explain it to you in a second, but it's not South America or Africa. It's supposed to be an iceberg because that classic illustration of uh, you only see a little bit uh, of the top sticking out of the surface of the water and, and below it is scores and scores and scores more depth and beauty and size and weight and I feel like that's a lot of our experience of God's grace. We can understand, most of us in the room, we are saved by grace through faith. We got that, all right? That's just the tip of the iceberg, just the very tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that God's grace is working in our life and is true about God's grace in our life. And for the next five weeks, I'd love to um, expand on that with you here in our time on Sundays. Let me tell you a little bit about this, then we'll get into our text because it's beautiful. Um, this is a, a, a book that I'll just tell you up front I wrote, um, but I had a lot of help editing and writing this. Um, it started many years ago, but I actually started to collect these thoughts when I was on sabbatical last year. Um, beautiful 
beautiful little spot there by the window um, where I wrote up in Boston a whole lot on Cape Cod, near Boston, Cape Cod. So uh, thank you for that spot. But um, this started there and uh, many years before that. But here was my point. I, I wanted to collect it in very, very thin way. I wanted to collect thoughts for you and I wrote it for you, no, nobody else, um, that were succinct and significant and weighty. And so uh, there's not a lot of flowery language in here, but I worked and worked and worked and with great people on our staff and Dr. Anderson helping me and other elders and pastors really tried to make something that was really simple for you. And so what we're doing is we're gonna expand. It's not gonna be the same in our time on Sundays. It's in the book, but I'm asking every small group, every family in our church, especially in a small group, if you're in a community, would you take the next five weeks or so and read through one chapter at a time. You can read a chapter in 10 minutes. It's really short. There's some questions afterward that you can discuss as a small group or as a family. Um, if you meet every week, that's great. If you meet every other week, just do two chapters a week or expand it, however you want. If you, whatever you do, I'd just like for us to do this as a church. I'm asking you to do it with me as a church and so that we can talk and pray through these um, very, very important subjects um, as a way of beginning our fall and getting into... Um, some maybe some very more felt needs and more practical things after this series when we talk about marriage and relationships. We want to start here, um, and today we're going to start in the book of Romans chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to tell you, turn to Romans and then remind you of what we talked about last week in our faith path. Um, this is our discipleship map. It's not just a map, but um, it centers on a map, and it has a website that goes along with it, thefaithpath.org that is full of amazing content, okay? Um, and as we saw this morning already, to enter into Christian discipleship on the path, you have to trust in Jesus for salvation. An early stop is to get baptized. We celebrated that this morning in both of our services and we will again tonight. This specific series falls right into two aspects of the, of the faith path, and that is to understand grace better and to practice grace with others. This fits perfectly into our plan of discipleship um, in biblical ways. And so we wanted to highlight that to you. If you don't know and you hadn't seen this, we talked about it all last week. There's some maps on the wall in the foyer. Grab one or grab two, stick it in your Bible, read it, go to the website. Um, and we want you to understand this is, this is an important aspect of, of everything that we're, we do at our church. If you weren't here in the sermon last week, it's not about me, but I'd love for you to go watch that online because I explain this and walk you through it. But here's where we are. We're talking about two aspects, entering in a new grace series, Romans 3. Okay, long preface. Romans 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 21 is where we'll start. And all you need to know about this is what better theological book in the New Testament is there other than Romans? Really spells out for us, like no other book does, beauty of God's grace and the gospel. Um, and it is absolutely central to the theology of the New Testament. Romans is indispensable. And if you were to topographically map the book of Romans, I don't know why we'd wanna do that, but I'm a dork and I think about things like this. And so if you were to do that, the peak of the mountain would be around chapter eight, probably chapter eight, verse one and following. It, it, it peaks there in language. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's beautiful. That's where, that's where Paul is heading in his argument. But the heart of the argument in the whole book, from chapter 1, verse 16, where he gives us his thesis, all the way through chapter 15, verse 13, where he ends the argument, the heart of it is actually the passage that we're going to read. 
Chapter 3, verse 21. Scholars say that. Cranfield, one of my scholars, says this is the very center and heart of not only this section, but the whole of the gospel, uh, of this, essentially a gospel to the Romans, this letter to the Romans. And so let's read a few verses starting in chapter 3, verse 21. Here's what it says. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. But by what kind of law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Go back to verse 21. I want to work this out with you because in here is language that is incredibly important for us to understand. I want to do two things today. I want to ask a couple questions and uh, see grace from a theological standpoint. If you would walk with me a little bit, uh, I think I'll try to make it clear to you. And then I want to ask some really central application questions. Where is grace found in our life? How do we access it? What does that mean? What is the point? Okay. So we're going to talk about some theological um, language starting in verse 21. Let's look there in 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Let me explain that first little phrase. If you were to go back and read chapter 3 right now or later, you would see that this Paul's language here is a little abbreviated. Um, the understanding of the law in verse 21 really should be expanded in full to talk about obedience to the law or the works of the law. Um, that's the last verse, verse 28 is what we read. Um, well, how is boasting excluded? No, not, not by works, but by faith, because we maintain that a man is justified by faith and not by works of the law. So what he's talking about here when it comes to the law is obedience to the law, the works of the law. So let's look at his big statement. This verse 21 is a statement understood clearly that drastically and dramatically challenges most of the theology of the planet Earth. Think about how most people think about um, understanding being in right standing with God, making God like you. What is most of the Earth, however they define God personally or impersonally, what would they say? I think most of the Earth, even many Christians would say, be good and God will like you, right? Be good. In fact, not only be good, but be really good. And when you're really good, try to even be better. And if you um, get to a place where your good is heavier on the scale than your bad, then God will like you and let you in. The Eightfold Path, Hinduism, Buddhism, the Eightfold Path, uh, Islam, lots of world religions and cults believe that the approach to God is only through one way, and that is through obedience, through works. And let's look at what Paul says. But now, apart from works of the law, apart from works of the law, 
So let's plot this a little bit for you engineers, okay? Works of the law are this way. Going uh, in this direction. Obedience to the law is in this direction. He says, Paul says, apart from the law, 90 degrees away, a new way of being in right standing with God has been revealed. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Righteousness, big word, we don't use that a lot in our normal language, right? It just means being in a place of right standing with God, being on good terms with him, being accepted by him, being able to be in his presence, righteousness. But now apart from obedience to the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's in a different direction. Let's look. Oh, by the way, all of this has been witnessed by all of the Old Testament, the law and prophets. This is not a new plan. This has all been witnessed by the law and the prophets, which is a way of explaining and summarizing the whole of the Old Testament. This is not plan B. This is not something God came up with around the time of Jesus' birth. This has been planned from the beginning, from the very beginning, and all of the Old Testament prepares us for this revelation, that there is a way to be right with God that is different than the works of obedience to the law. Wow. I got to be honest, when I grew up in a church, in a church tradition, where that's the way I thought that you got to be good with God. I grew up believing in God, that God existed. I believe that Jesus existed. I believe that he died on the cross. I didn't, make sh- I didn't really understand how it all fit together and what it meant for me. But I knew that I wanted to be good and do good things and not do bad things as a way of earning a voice with God, earning a place in heaven and trying to eke my way up instead of trying to eke my way down, okay? And what's good about that is it's easy to compare yourself for most of us in the room. I thought, um, I've never been to prison. That's awesome. That's a check mark. I'm already on the good side, okay? I've never committed anything worthy of prison that nobody's found out about yet. Okay, good, that's another check. I'm headed in the right direction, right? It's easy to compare yourself to some of the worst stories on the earth, right? I'm not Hitler, not Mussolini. We're not people like this, Pol Pot, okay? We're, We're in the good direction here. But is that really what God intends us to compare himself to, ourselves to? Um, but now apart from obedience to the law, and it took me a long time till I was almost 20 to really understand what Paul said in this verse. Somebody had to walk me through it. Somebody had to explain words to me like righteousness and justification and sin. And that's what Paul's gonna do. Okay, verse 22. Even, we're going along, but now apart from the law, works of the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed and testified by all of the Old Testament, even, here we go, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Wait a second, that's a pretty different trajectory. It's not by obedience and works of the law that we get into right standing with God. There is a new way that's been revealed and it is by placing faith in Jesus, by believing in him. There's another question, what is faith? Is is faith just a mental understanding of, of facts and doctrine? No, it's begins with an understanding, but it's much more than that, right? It's a believing trust. It's putting the weight of your life on something that you trust, on Jesus Christ, the Savior. Faith. The nature of faith is important for us to understand in order for us to 
do it, to explain it, to actually have faith in our life. And what does the scripture constantly contrast faith to over and over again? It's not faith um, versus um, not faith. It's faith, faith is different than works. Okay, that's this trajectory. The obedience to the law. And now it's this trajectory. So for those of you engineered, how do you go in this direction and ever get closer to this direction? You don't. It's impossible unless you change this trajectory and swing back around. And so as you walk in this, you actually get further away from this. So Paul is saying something dramatic here. For now, but now, in this time, in this era, that Jesus has been here and died and rose again. We'll get to that. A new way of standing before God in righteousness, in right standing with God, has been revealed. And it's been the plan the whole time. And it's not works of obedience and righteousness. That have a, that those have a place. Holiness has a place. Uh, works that are good has a place. Obedience, faithfulness, all has a place. But its place is not earning righteousness with God. That's been revealed by faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. For all who believe, we get a synonymous idea of faith by believing, believing trust. And oh, by the way, there's no distinction. Why? Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the one verse most of you probably recognize from this passage, right? That's part of the Roman roads. That's where we start explaining the gospel. And it's a great place to start explaining the gospel. All of us have failed. All of us fall short. There's none who can earn their way. Paul allows for that in his theology of Romans in chapter two. He says, we know that it's the doers of the law that are justified. Wait a second, are we contradicting ourselves? Uh, he says in chapter two, it's the doers of the law that are justified. And he comes back around in chapter three, just a few verses before our section. He says, but let's be honest, nobody's ever going to be justified by the law because the standard is not comparing yourselves to those in prison or those felons. The standard of comparison is the righteousness of Jesus, which is perfect all the time. So how many of you do and obey the law all the time without ever once failing? The answer in Paul is no one, not a one, not anybody ever, never. It's impossible. So there's no distinction. We can't walk this path and ever get closer to right right standing with God by earning our way. And so God has revealed a new way in Jesus. And that's faith, believing. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now we get to some language, verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace. You may have heard the story, maybe old to you, maybe new to you. But years ago there was a conference on comparative religions in England with scholars worldwide uh, Christian and otherwise, talking about world religions and how they compare, how they contrast. One of the smaller conversations that was going on was centered around this question. What is the unique belief of Christianity that sticks out uh, when compared to all the other religions? Is there a belief of Christianity that is unique from everything else that people believe? And so they begin to discuss, is it the uh, incarnation? No, it's actually not. There are other um, world religions and cults that have ideas 
about God incarnating himself? Is it the, the resurrection? That's one. one of a, hey, that's got to be it, right? The resurrection. Actually, no. There are other world religions and philosoph- philosophies and religious belief that some include the idea and the possibility of a resurrection. And so on and on they discuss. And as the story goes, C.S. Lewis walks in as a part of this conference in comparative religions and uh, a latecomer to this discussion walks in and goes in his English accent, hey, what are you guys talking about? And one of the guys asks, well, the rumpus is, what is the unique belief of Christianity compared to all world religions? And C.S. Lewis intact says, well, that's easy. It's grace. And the guys looked at him and then he sat down and they began to discuss it. And after a long discussion, here's a bunch of scholars who came to a conclusion that nobody could disagree with that. There's not any other system of belief, philosophy or religious, that have the idea of a free gift being given to someone from God and that gift is right standing with him, welcoming into his presence, heaven, life, forgiveness, redemption. There's no other system in the world that has that as a gift. All the other systems work on this trajectory. Some way of obedience and faithfulness. Some way of earning your way. And so Paul, beautifully, what is it that we get to enjoy? Being justified as a gift by his grace. Justified. One more word that you need to understand, okay? There has been many in the history of the church that have defined that word like this. Justified equals to make a person righteous. Okay? Sounds pretty good. To make a person in right standing with God. To be holy. Okay? So that they're able to access the presence of God. The problem with that is very, very significant. First of all, It's not a good definition of the word in Greek. That's not what the word in Greek means, okay? That's not how the New Testament ever uses justify or justification. But to make a person righteous, how do we do that? Well, we have to change the way that they think, have to change the way that they live, have to change the way that they act. To make a person righteous in reality becomes immediately an act of action and work and obedience and faithfulness. And it sounds a lot like this trajectory, being made righteous. But that's not what the word means. That's what the New Testament word means. Being justified is very different. One word switched. It's not to make a person righteous. It's to declare a person righteous. Very big difference. Because it's a legal term. And we have God as the judge, as it were, on the bench looking down at us, the sinner, all of us. We've done it guilty. And so he says, "Uh, you got to get better. That's what justifies me. I got to make you better, right? Because sin makes you bad, so I got to make you better. You got to help me with that, so if you get better, we'll be good. But we know that sin doesn't make you bad, right? Sin makes you dead, And so you need to be brought back to life. In order to do that, only a judge can look at you and say, tap the gavel, I declare you to be righteous as the judge. How does a person do that? How does a judge do that? Look, as a gift of his grace, being justified, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Oh, wait a second, there's another person in the courtroom. There's another person in the courtroom besides you and God the judge. 
He's standing over here to your left, the judge's right, as your advocate. And, oh, wait, what did he do? Well, he paid your penalty. He paid everything to purchase grace. You see, grace, we can talk about the freedom of grace, and we will in just a second, but the first thing we need to understand is that grace is the most expensive gift ever purchased. It's costly, incredibly costly. God did not buy and purchase his gift of grace with gold or jewels or half of his kingdom. He purchased it by offering over his son, his one and only son, to death, a terrible death. It cost him everything. There's no greater cost. So grace, the gift of grace, to be able to tap the gavel and declare someone righteous has a great cost. And he looks over at Jesus, his son, and he says, because you have paid everything, nothing left undone, because you have done that, and because this person, sinner though they are, have placed their faith in you, I declare them to be righteous. It's an altogether different story. It's an altogether different story. What we learn is that grace is the most important expensive gift ever purchased, but also that grace is given freely to the one who puts his faith in Jesus, to she who puts her faith in Jesus. We'll pause here and go to Ephesians, my favorite, one of my favorite passages, Ephesians chapter one, verses five and six. The father predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself. Listen, according to the kind intention of his will, this means he wanted to do it, he was good, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. To the praise and glory of of his infinite grace. You see the tip of the iceberg and we can talk about it forever and not scratch the surface. And oh, by the way, he freely gives that to you, bestows it upon you. Now back to Romans 3. It gets good in verse 25. As if the redemption which is in Christ Jesus isn't enough, verse 25 and 26, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. That propitiation, that's a big word. That's a $2 word, okay? Maybe 250. Um, and uh, if you listen, then you can understand the meaning of it and you can impress your friends that aren't here, okay? And so this is a word that's only used once in all of Paul, right here, right here. Um, and it's uh, actually a reference in the Old Testament to a piece of furniture, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was called the mercy seat, because this is the very, very specific location which atonement happened, a covering of sin to do away with sin in, in some ways in the life of the person who's worshiping and sacrificing to free them from the penalty of sin in that person by spilling blood on this mercy seat. This seat is the background to this word. But obviously, he's not looking at the Ark of the Covenant. He's looking at what that became in full when Jesus died on the cross. Now, that is the perfect, the ultimate, the quintessential place of atonement, the place where covering of our sin happened. Jesus, the advocate, paid it all, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For demonstration, I say, 
of his righteousness in the present time so that he would be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Quickly, you understand, all of the Old Testament, none of those sacrifices back then could ultimately forgive sin. All they did was delay the punishment. God passed over them. There was no Messiah until Jesus came. There was no perfect sacrifice until Jesus came. So how did people get their sins forgiven in the Old Testament? God passed over them because of their faith, because of those sacrifices that maintained fellowship with them. All of those are important. But he piled those sins up until Jesus came at the right time. And that is why Jesus can say, and Paul can say of him, he died once and for all, for all sins, past, present, and future. Because in the mercy of God, this is not plan B, this is not something he recently came up with. He said from the beginning, before the foundation of the world, because before there was a second to call history, He said, this is what's going to happen. I see it all. And in the fullness of time, I will send my son Jesus. And he will pay for all of those sins from Adam until the day that he died. And for all the sins that are after in that one moment, in that one perfect act of sacrifice and atonement. Because in God's mercy, he passed over those sins. So that why? Because if God just said, ah, you know what? I know that blood of that bull and goat isn't perfect, so it can't perfectly cover your sins, but let's just say it's perfect. We'll sort of uh, tick that one off. We'll sweep it under the rug a little bit. It'll be fine. I can do that. But God couldn't do that and maintain his character. God couldn't do that and still be just. And so there had to be an advocate who paid for everyone in order for God to still be just and to be able to justify those who have faith in Jesus. And so in his forbearance, he passed over sins and Jesus at the fullness of time came and paid for it all. There's nothing left to be done. Verse 27, I love this. Where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? You see, still some of us, even though this beautiful, simple story of the gospel, we still have many of us a saving private Ryan kind of faith. Okay, that's an R-rated movie, so I can't formally um, submit that movie to you to go see. I don't want to do that. It's R, don't see it. (laughs) It's really, really good, okay, but don't see it. Um, That whole movie is based on a line in Stephen Ambrose's famous Band of Brothers, a line of fact. Four brothers named Ryan, three of them died, one of them got to be rescued. That's all he says. And Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks took that and made a beautiful movie out of it. A lot of it's fiction, but the base story is true. And spoiler alert, it came out a long time ago, okay? Uh, Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller, at the very end of the movie, after tracking Private Ryan down, wants to take him. And he says, no, I got to stay with my people. This bridge is important. We got to do this one last stand, okay? And they do their last stand. They save the bridge. It's an important bridge for the mission of the whole movement in Europe, And here is Captain Miller sitting on the bridge, mortally wounded, and he's looking around as uh, Private Ryan comes rushing up to him with tears in his eyes, okay? Captain Miller's looking around. You remember the scene? He's looking at all the carnage, all of the death, all of the people in his little small company that are now, have spent their lives to save Private Ryan. And what does he say there? He's looking, and he can barely muster words, but he says to Private Ryan, As he looks around, earn this. Earn this, he says it twice. 
and then it flashes into the future. And here's now an aged Private Ryan at the grave of Captain Miller at Arlington National Cemetery, and behind him is his wife and kids and their spouses and their grandkids, and with tears in his eyes, he looks at Captain Miller's grave, and then he points back to them, and he says, I earned it. Do you see? Do you see all of this? I'm, I'm bringing this as evidence that I earned the salvation that you gave me. There's still a lot of Christians who believe that's the way it works. God gives it to us up front, free, but then we have to earn it back. I want to speak very, very carefully and crystal clear. Jesus never says, earn this. Jesus never tells you to earn what he gives freely. It's a gift. You receive it by faith and by grace. And so where is boasting, it says. When we get to heaven and stand before God and we get redemption and forgiveness and our name is written in his book of life because of our faith in Jesus, we can't say, I did this. This is awesome. Made my own way. Bootstraps are big on my boots, right? And this is my, nobody can say that. Nobody will ever be there on their own. So, If we aren't justified by works of righteousness and holiness and obedience to the law, but we're justified by faith in Jesus, then where do our works fit in? Are they important? Of course they are. Of course they are. Jesus and Paul would say, just because we justify you freely by grace based on your faith doesn't mean you can live like you want. That's a terrible idea. Terrible idea. But what it does mean is that there is no earning when it comes to the righteousness that God gives us as a gift of his grace. So where is boasting? Boasting we can't do by the law of works. No, it's excluded, right? What does he say? Not by the law of works is it, no, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works apart from works. So where do works fit in? We'll talk about that in the future, but works are extremely important. But as we plot it out linear, again, for you uh, engineers, okay? Let's say that justification by faith is in the middle. Salvation is in the middle. Do do, uh, works of righteousness precede justification so that we're uh, savable? No, 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 no. Biblically speaking, they flow out of salvation in gratitude to God, in obedience to him. And this is where discipleship happens. This is where sanctification begins. And sanctification is by grace and by faith, but also by faithfulness, by obedience, by holiness. And so works are perfect, but a lot of people want to put them over here as a way of gaining or earning our salvation. But the Bible makes it very clear, no, 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 they work out here. Super important and critical to the life of the disciple, but they flow out of salvation in gratitude. I don't work to try to please my earthly father, Patrick, because I want to um, make him like me, because I want to make him love me. He loves me. He gave me his name. He raised me and provided me with everything I ever needed and still does if I'm in a pinch. But now I want to do things, and then I go to my dad and I say, hey, dad, look at this. Are are you proud of me? And he says, I'm so proud of you, son. And I said, I love that. Because you love me, I want to do things that please you. I'm not trying to earn his love. 
I'm doing it out of gratitude for all that he did for me, all that he does for me. And so works of obedience are extremely important. This grace that God pours out on us, the gospel that I tried to explain to you is open for all of you. I invite you all, if you haven't yet, to place your faith in Jesus. By that faith, God can justify you and declare you righteous because Jesus had paid it all for you. It's the simple gospel. There is no earning. There is no climbing a ladder. There is no ever being good enough. It's impossible. God has done it all in Jesus. And he gives you life and redemption as a free gift of grace. Is that beautiful? What um, I love about some of these things that I read and stuff is it gives me examples of things that I would have never run into, particularly like Japanese philosophy. I would have never run into aspects of philosophy and thinking on the other side of the world, like the Japanese belief in kintsukorai. That's a word you'll never hear again, okay? Kintsukorai is a Japanese philosophy of things that are broken. Can I show you a picture of Japanese kintsukorai? When Japanese people for hundreds of years now take a bowl or a dish that has been broken, it's been dropped, it's fallen, it's broken. Instead of discarding it, what they do is they mix resin with either silver, platinum, or gold dust, and they put it back together, highlighting the cracks and brokenness. And then it becomes useful again, and not only that, and now it has a story. And they celebrate the cracks and brokenness as part of the story of that object. In that beautiful way, in, in the perfect, fulfilled way, that's what God's grace does to us. Do you understand that when we stand before him, we're going to stand before him with cracks in our hearts and our minds and our broken deeds and our terrible sinful ways and thoughts, and he's going to fill all of those cracks with this gold of grace, and we get to tell a more beautiful story. God invites all of that. You see, we don't earn our way by perfection. No cracks, no brokenness, no dents. God says, no, 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 that's not real life. Nothing works that way. I want to fill you with the beautiful gift of my grace. And what that's going to do is accent, in many ways, your brokenness as it fills it, as it makes you whole again. So that when we stand as trophies of God's grace, we get to point to all of the scars and wounds that God put back together. Philip Yancey tells the story of a, of a young woman who grew up in a cherry orchard north of Traverse City, Michigan. And growing up, it's when she reached her early teens, she didn't like her parents very much. They were too strict. They said things about her nose ring and the length of her skirt and her language. They loved her, but she was annoyed. She had been to Detroit not too many hours away, previous on a school trip, and she thought, Detroit is where I really need to be. And so she in the cover of darkness and night, left her home, never told her family, but found her way to Detroit. It was in Detroit that she ran into a guy that was really, really nice to her. He gave her a place to stay. He gave her things that made her feel really good. And then after time, he started asking her to do things for him. And he would send men her way in her penthouse. Um, she called him boss. And he was really, really nice until she became sick. Um, and she couldn't do the things that 
boss was asking her to do and then boss changed really, really quickly. He kicked her out of the penthouse and he took everything away and all of a sudden here she found herself in the cold of a Michigan winter living on the back streets of Detroit. Sleeping on grates that had some hot steam coming through them and constantly being aware of footsteps or anybody who could take advantage of her. She had become very, very sick now. Dark bags under her eyes. She'd lost a lot of weight and week and week and month after month. Until at one night she was sleeping on those grates very, very sick. Her cough had gotten worse. Her body ached. She began to remember the cherry orchards of Traverse City, the beauty of what it's like even in the winter there. And she tossed a ball for her golden retriever and the dog would run through the orchards. And she longed for home. She scraped up enough money to both buy a couple of calls from a payphone and a very, very meager bus ticket. And she called her parents. First call went to answer machine, she hung up. She called right back and went to the answer machine, she hung up. Third call went to the answer machine, she left a message. She said, mom and dad, it's me. Uh, I'm in Detroit. I'm sick. I've made a mess of my life. But I'm about to get on a bus and come to the station in Traverse City. Because of all the stops, it'll be there about midnight. If you welcome me back, maybe you would be there. If not then I'll just stay on the bus until it gets to Canada. And she hung up the phone. She got on the bus. She didn't have anything to take with her. And then on that bus ride and all of the stops and the many hours it took, seven hours, she was approaching midnight and she began to be flushed with worry. She's like, what have I done? What have I done? What if they're on vacation? What if they're not there? What if they never get the message? And she started thinking of all the things that could go wrong. And one stop came and the bus driver would open the door and he'd say, 15 minutes. It wasn't Traverse City yet. It was the next one. And she stayed in her seat, hungry, tired, scared. A couple minutes later, he pulls up into a bus station in Traverse City, psh, opens the door, 15 minutes. All he's got, 15 minutes. And then he's off again. 15 minutes for the rest of her life. She walks out of the bus and begins to look around the sidewalk and there's nobody there that she recognizes. She walks into the station and she looks over to the left and there's just people moving and people selling tickets and her eye comes over here and then in the back right-hand corner there's a group of about 40 people wearing party hats. Her mom and dad are front and center. Her brothers and sisters, her aunts and uncles, even grandma and some neighbors are there. There's a computer-generated sign hung on the wall behind him that says, welcome back. And she doesn't believe it. She begins to walk forward. Her dad walks to her and he embraces her and she pushes him when she says, dad, I've messed up everything. I'm so sorry. And he says, stop, stop. He said, we have so much time for that later. We have to go. You see, we're going to miss the party if we don't leave now. It's a big banquet waiting at home for you. The, the truth of God's grace is that only people with cracks and brokenness, only prodigals have the memory of the Father's home that takes us back to Him. It's only the, the loss of that in sinfulness and foolishness in which we see the beauty of God's grace and its depth in our life. That's why I'd love to study it with you and talk about it with you over these next few weeks. It's the greatest gift you've ever been offered and it's got way more to say than just rescuing you from sin and death. It's got way more to say 
than just that. You've been listening to Pastor Scott Pollock. Oh, what joy and peace comes from knowing that we are saved in Christ Jesus because of faith alone in His finished work on the cross. Perhaps this is the first time you have heard of God's amazing grace. Be sure to tell others about it as well. We invite you to download Scott's free e-booklet, Grace Simple Profound. You'll find it at gsot.edu forward slash simple grace. That's gsot.edu forward slash simple grace. Download your copy today. We're so glad you tuned in today. And remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.